Steve Matteo is the author of the short biography Dylan and a well-known music writer and journalist whose work has been featured in a wide range of magazines, including The New York Times, Blender, Rolling Stone, Spin, and Details. He is also the author of one of our first books from the 33 and a Third series, The Beatles Let It Be. In this episode, I sat down with Steve and did a deep dive into his book, discussing the Beatles themselves, the story behind the Let It Be album, and the many interviews he had with people who were in the studio with the band. Though the recording sessions for Let It Be began as rehearsals for a proposed return to live stage work, the result was a dramatic, creative, and chaotic period of music making that ended in one of their last albums ever. Take a listen. I'm here today with Steve Matteo, the author of the uh, 33 and a Third's Let It Be, uh, number 12 in the series. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice being here. Um, so just to get started, what was your motivation for writing this book? Uh, I mean, it's been 15, about 15 years now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I contacted David Barker because I heard about the series and I thought it was really an interesting series and it was just the kind of thing that mm. I wanted to do. So he actually at first said, how'd you like to write a book on Bob Dylan? Because I had already written a book on Dylan. Right. So I was like, well, you know, I don't know if I really want to do that again. I've kind of already sort of done that. And so I was like, well, you know, what about the Beatles? You have a, do you have a Beatles book? And he's like, actually, no. He goes, I don't have a Dylan book or a Beatles book. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of thought about it. He didn't, he didn't really make up his mind like immediately. But then he said, okay, well, which album would you want to do? And so I picked Let It Be because not because it's one of their best albums, because it definitely isn't, but because it's such a great story. And it was sort of in the news at the time. So um, that's that was it. And, I, you know, I'm really glad that I picked that album because it really it has had this continuous life and not just through, you know, reissues, but it's really had a life that continues on. So, uh, you know, it's the it's the end of the Beatles. Um it's the end of the 60s. Right. So there was all these other things to sort of write about. I mean, I really looked at it more, not so much from a music point of view, but from like, you know, a journalism or from a almost literary point of view, like what is going to make a better story? Right. And Let It Be was just a great story. What was so, I mean, because in this book, sometimes when 33 and a third writers, they they sort of... I feel like there's different approaches to it. Some people take the album and they make some kind of cultural critique with the album. But this, in your case, I think you were really just writing, as you said, like a journalistic take on the actual story of the making of the album. What was so intriguing about it to you? Well, I'll, I'll just explain sort of the kind of the form or the process and I'll, mm-hmm. then I'll sort of answer that more directly. Is it, is it let it be the film is a documentary. So I approached it as if I was making a documentary, only instead of a film documentary, it was a written textual Mm -hmm. documentary. So it's not a critique. It's not Steve's opinion of Let It Be. It's very much I approached it as a journalist, which is what I am. I'm a journalist. So, um, I mean, it's just it's it's intriguing because, again, it's it is the it's the end of the Beatles. It's the end of the 60s. It's the last album that's released by the Beatles, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the last album they worked on. 
Okay. The last album that they actually worked on was Abbey Road. So Abbey Road is really the last Beatles album. Now, Let It Be is, it gets released after Abbey Road, but it was recorded before Abbey Road. I know that's very confusing. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because it's a film. Um, there's hours and hours of film. There's hours and hours of bootleg audio, including dialogue. Yeah. Um, there was, for years, there was so much written about the tapes, the, the, the bootleg tapes and how they became bootleg tapes. The whole story of how unhappy they were doing it and how in the end it was sort of like thrown together and Phil Spector came in and sort of finished the album off, which which John and George were kind of okay with. Ringo just went along with it and Paul did not really, uh, he was not happy about it. So, I mean, there's all this stuff. Then when I, um, around this time, there's the whole thing came up with Phil Spector, mm. the whole murder trial, all of that with Phil. And what, so, can you explain that? Well, he, he allegedly was convicted, well, he's been convicted of murdering this actress, Lana Clarkson, I believe her name is, and he's still in jail. Okay. Wow. So he was in the news at the time. And some of the tapes were also recovered at the time. So it was like, it wasn't like a museum piece. Like, okay, I'm going to go back and write about, you know, what's going on by Marvin Gaye <laughs> and just give you a sense of what it was like to be there and, and do a critique and whatever. It was like, it was a living sort of breathing thing, you know? And over the years, it continues to be where they, uh, they put out the Let It Be Naked. I don't rem- remember how much... I, I had about that or heard about that at the time. And then now there's going to be this new film that's going to come out. Um, right. Peter Jackson's been commissioned right, to right, direct it, right? Right. In um, May is the anniversary of the release of the album. It'll be 50 years. So they're finally going to put the um, movie out. The movie has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray, only VHS. To show you how long it's been since it's been available, you can't stream it. So they're going to put it out, but they're also going to put out this new sort of companion film that Peter Jackson is directing. So, I mean, obviously, Peter Jackson is like one of the biggest film directors in the world right now with what he's done with the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films. So, um, you know, he's busily working on this, you know, somewhere in New Zealand, I believe it is. It's funny. And just to show you how this continues to live is um, this guy is doing research for Apple Records for the film, um, contacted me uh, for background, research, you know, wow. ideas, contacts. So, you know, again, it's just like it still is. Once, once this news came out, I had a number of people contact me and wanted to interview me. There's really only, there are, there are three books out on Let It Be, including mine. One of them is what I consider the real, like, Bible of Let It Be because it's, it basically is the day-to-day of what happened. It's like a diary. It's not a, it's not a narrative. It's a, really like a diary. And then there was a book about Let It Be and Abbey Road Together that came out years and years ago. It's, what, it's long out of print. So, um, you know, there's, I, I don't know if this guy contacted uh, Doug Solpe, who wrote what I consider is, it's like the, the Bible of this, because it's like this almost transcription of what happened. Mm-hmm. He actually tried to um, publish that. But Apple got wind of it and said, no, you're not. 
I'm sure that there were some legal conundrums yeah. with that. I mean, there's, there's, 50, there's like 55 hours of film mm. and there's 55 hours of Nagra audio tapes. So there's, that's what they did. One of the, uh, I interviewed one of the guys who did the film and he said, um, our, uh, what we were told to do is as soon as one of the Beatles showed up, we were to start filming and we were to continue to film until at least one of them was there. So, and this went on for, you know, a month, roughly. So, uh, so it's, you know, it was like, you get to go and live in this place too, like to go and live, you know, I'm not, I'm not old enough where I was really around in the sixties. So you get to sort of go and live in that place. Mm -hmm. So that's the personal sort of what makes it intriguing for me. You know, there are no time machines. They haven't invented any yet. So, you know, a book or writing a book you know, is like a time you can go and live there. You can do research and, and talk to the people who were there. I talked to a lot of people who were there, which was great. That worked on the film, that worked on the album, that worked at Apple Records. Um, so, you know, it was it was great meeting some of these people. You know, it was great. I'm really glad I did it because some of these people are now, they're no longer with us. Who did you get to speak to? Who were some highlights? I mean, I, I talked to the director of the film, Michael Lindsay Hogg. Mm -hmm. which was just, you know, amazing. I mean, Michael has done a lot of films. He did Brideshead Revisited. Yeah, I wow. mean, he's, you know, he's an amazing person to talk to. He's still very much around, still, you know, active in a lot of creative ways. He's a painter. He's a mm -hmm. film director. Um, I talked to Alan Parsons, the, the record producer. I talked to Peter Brown, who was, you know, he was there all during the Brian Epstein years. He was Brian's right hand. You know, he's famously quoted in the Ballad of John and Yoko, the, the lyrics. Um, yeah, I learned that in your book. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. You know, people who worked on the film. I talked to this one guy who was at what was called EMI mm -hmm. uh, Studios, now called Abbey Road Studios. He was there the day that the Beatles showed up for their audition for George Martin. Wow. And, and remembered it like it was yesterday. You know, so you're talking to, it's, you know, firsthand. I mean, I really tried to get, I think I did 30 interviews. I tried to get as much sort of, you know, firsthand, you know, I was there, you know, rather than just gleaning things from books or newspapers or magazines. So, um, you know, it was just, it was, I, I talked to so many people. It was just, it was a great experience. It really was. Did you try and talk to Paul or Ringo? No, because it's just, it's a waste of time. And then you're alerting Apple that you're writing a book and you, you know, you're fearful that, you know, they may, you know, try to get in your way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people say Apple has more lawyers than Disney. I mean, you know? I believe it. So, and that's not a, that's not a slight against, you know, Paul or, or against Ringo or Olivia or Yoko. But I mean, that's, you know, they have this thing they're trying to protect, you know, so I understand it. You know, it's the most valuable music property in the world is the Beatles catalog or anything related to them. There's nothing more important. I, I don't, you know, you, you know, you can argue with me that there's something else, maybe a movie or something. But so it's like they have all these lawyers, you know. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, and in your book, I read that once they started taping, once the Beatles were there, they just didn't stop taping. You said that there were 55 hours worth of film. And I think that kind of feeds into the sort of psychological uh, landscape that you were setting in this book. I mean, 
can you go into that a little bit about like what what the Beatles were actually feeling when they were yeah. recording this? I mean, here uh, let me set the stage. So they've been together now since roughly 19, you know, 62, 63. I mean, the, the, the lineup that we know of is not the first lineup of the group. I mean, there, there were other people that were in the Beatles. You know, everybody knows this. Pete Best was the drummer before Ringo. Stuart Sutcliffe was, was in the band. Um, and then even before that, there was the Quarrymen and the Silver Beatles. And, you know, anyway, so they were together a long time. You know, they grew up together. They were in each other's pockets all these years. And they were growing up and they were growing apart and they were, they want to live their own lives. They want to, you know, getting married and having children. And, you know, it's not like everybody thinks, you know, you know, being in a rock band is like the monkeys, you know, four guys living in a house and having, you know, fun all the time. That's great when you're 20, you know, but when you, you know, they were, they were in their late twenties at this point. I mean, they're not old, but they're, they want to go there. They're all kind of going their own way. You know, George is really blossoming and coming out of the shadow of John and Paul, you know, um, you know, John is very wrapped up with Yoko and getting very involved in, in sort of new ways of expressing himself and really getting into the avant-garde, even though Paul was really more into the avant-garde before any of them. He really was, mm-hmm. um, you know, Paul's also like, Paul just can't stop writing songs. I mean, he is just, he's just a ball of fire. You know, he's the one that wants to keep the group together the most. I think Ringo just kind of, you know, wants to just will go along with whatever's <laughs> going to happen. And I don't, I don't mean that as a slight against Ringo, you know. I think George is really, he is at a kind of an end point. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is, he was really the, the force between saying in 66, we're not touring anymore. We're not playing live anymore. And John is really, you know, looking to pull away very much. So that's where they are. Then you put them on a soundstage in January and it's cold out and it's, you know, this big barren soundstage and they're there early in the morning. These are musicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And you put microphones and cameras on them at every step of the way. I mean, that isn't how they worked. I mean, they made films. They made two, they made two films before Mm -hmm. this. I mean, Yellow Submarine, they're not, they're not really in it. Magical Mystery Tour was like cinema verite. So they made two feature films. So they were used to when they would record, they would be at Abbey Road or wherever else they would record. Mm-hmm. And they would, no one's watching. There's no one around. They're very hermetically sealed and doing whatever they want, you know. And the people at Abbey Road worked with them for so many years that it's not like, oh, my God, it's the Beatles. It's like they've worked with them for so long. So there was the comfort mm-hmm. of that, too. I mean, part of it was um, they wanted to get away from Abbey Road. They wanted to get away from working with George Martin and, and making music that was so produced, you know. But so there's there's obviously a lot going on. There's all kinds of issues going on with Apple Records, uh, which is really becoming a problem. It's really mm. very mismanaged. Look, they're not businessmen. They're musicians. They're artists. They tried to do this thing, Apple, which still exists. It's still... You know, it's still their company. Um, so you can imagine things are not going to go very smoothly. They're not really sure what are they doing. Are they making a movie? Are they rehearsing to to play live? That was the impetus, was they were going to do a concert of some kind. 
as a way to sort of get back to their roots. Because they had, they, particularly John, had grown tired of the, how the albums became so meticulously recorded and overdubbed and the, the, the whole, like, it's got to be this perfect thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it was good that they did that because that's why they made such great music because they took such pride in what they were doing. But they had grown a little weary of it and they wanted to just sort of kind of just let their hair down and just kind of be, you know, just let it more happen. You know, they were kind of moving away from the sort of psychedelic. They wanted like that, like the White Album was definitely a move away from that. Right. You know, they were moving quickly away, you know. And so there's all this going on. So what happened is the filming after a few weeks of that, they're like, this, we're not doing this. Let's just, are we going to make a record? Let's just make a record. Okay. So they decided, okay, well, we have our own Apple studios now. Let's go there. Okay. So they go to Apple and in the basement is what is supposed to be their recording studio. It's a disaster because this guy, Magic Alex, was the one who was supposed to build them this studio that would be like no other studio in the world. And Alex was a little crazy. We'll just say that. (laughs) And so they suddenly realized they don't really have a recording studio. So right away, George Martin is brought back in to the situation. Okay. They've been working with this guy, Glenn Johns, who's been sort of like not really the producer, but sort of like the, uh, the engineer who would just be the guy to make sure that, you know, okay, the audio is good and and all of that. And he's worked with everybody. I mean, he's worked with Eric Clapton and the Rolling Stones. Mm. I mean, he's one of the great record producers ever of British rock. And he's recorded a lot of Americans, too. He produced a lot of the Eagles albums. In England, you know, the American California band, a lot of that music was actually recorded in England <laughs> with, with an English record producer. Um, so they start kind of, you know, they're working in Apple they're, and they're mm. trying to just get some takes and they're just trying to kind of get some songs together. And it's, you know, they're, they're doing okay, but they're like, well, what are we doing? We still, are we making a record? I guess we're making a record, but we are kind of making a film. So I'm, I'm trying to condense here a little bit because I want everybody to read the book. <laughs> the whole story is they decide to do this concert on the roof because it's the easiest thing to do, the roof of Apple Records. And that's what you see at the end of the film, Let It Be, the the famous rooftop concert, which lasts about 40 minutes. And that's really sort of, it's not the end for them. You know, when people see that, they think, oh, God, it's so sad. That's the end of the Beatles. No, they, they took those tapes and they put them to the side and they tried a couple of times to sort of see if Glenn Johns could get a mix that they could release and it wasn't happening. So they said, you know what, let's just forget about it. Let's, let's, let's ring up George Martin. Let's go back into Abbey Road and let's make a proper album. That's why Abbey Road and Let It Be are often linked. There was a lot that they did um, during that month of January at the film studio and at Apple that ended up on, if not finished versions, later versions became part of Abbey Road. Okay. Yeah, and, and you've touched upon it a little bit already, but something that I found intriguing about your book is, you know, all of the exploration of like musical music innovation and technology. They clearly did not want to have such a produced sound anymore. Um, can you go a little bit into that about, I mean, do you feel like it's given some kind of legacy to musical production in today's music? I think that the legacy 
it comes from the music they made prior. Okay. You know, when they're starting to, they're starting to really experiment in like 65, like with, with Rubber Soul. That's the mm-hmm. beginning where you feel something is really changing here. This is really exciting and interesting and different. And then it really explodes the next year with Revolver. That's like the real first sort of psychedelic produ- produced album where they're really going far. They're, they're introducing more of the Indian music and, you know, backward tapes or whatever. I mean, some of it is, is that is, is, let me see if I can say this right. It's not so much that they're pushing the technology forward into something new or the technology is moving forward. It's more really than being resourceful. And it's, it has a lot to do with George Martin, but more specifically the engineers who were at Abbey Road you know, where John Lennon would say, you know, I want my voice to sound like a hundred monks chanting at dawn. Okay. Is that I a mean, real example? <laughs> more or less, more or less. Like things that are not like, like you could say, well, I want my guitar to sound, you know, more vibrato or, you know, more treble, more low end, you know, things that are specific to either music or technology. But John would, or, you know, would come up with these things. You know, it's like Neil Young once when Neil Young was making Harvest. They're doing it. He got really mad. He goes, I want more barn, you know, because they literally were recording it in a barn. So some of it is, again, is musical. Some of it's technical. Some of it is just musicians. And, you know, we, we hear about this with musicians who think about their music in terms of other sort of disciplines. You know, I mean, I think like people like Joni Mitchell, they're a perfect example because she's a painter. So she sees the colors of the music. And, and all arts do this, where they take from different art forms and try to, you know, do things through the prism of, well, this part, I kind of see this as a, you know, I want it to be more film noir, you know, or vice versa or whatever. And so I think they just wanted to like, let's just, what songs do we have? And let's just, let's make them as a group. I mean, there used to be this really exciting group. I mean, that's how they started, just these four guys playing. You know, when they were in Liverpool, they they were really making a name for themselves. But what happened is what really pushed the Beatles over the edge was when they went to Hamburg and they played there for months on end, you know, night after night, hours and hours of playing. They became so good and so tight. And when they came back to Liverpool and played, people were like, oh, my God, the change. And that's who they really were and what really made them was that group, those four guys Mm. basically playing live. And then as time went along, they wanted to be more about writing songs and then seeing them come together, if you'll excuse the expression, (laughs) in the studio. That's really what they became. But then I think the studio thing became a little, it became a little ingrown for them. And I think they felt a little stifled by it. I think, especially John, I think. I think Paul just... Paul just, Paul was happy being a Beatle. He was happy doing this thing with these other three guys and working at Abbey Road and working with George Martin, you know? So um, it wasn't so much in the end, and when I mean by the end, not Abbey Road, but um, Let It Be, it wasn't really about, it wasn't about technology. It was more about that feel of these guys playing together. And that's part of why they were frustrated because that wasn't happening. There wasn't that feeling wasn't there. I mean, there were times when there was moments of it or sparks of it, but um, it really wasn't there. 
There's clearly so much going on in the making of this album. It must have been impossible to, or not impossible, but very difficult to condense it all into a hundred page book. Can you talk about your experience trying to tell this story in a 33 and a third format? You know, I first of all, I think the book is about 140 pages or something like that. Yeah, 130. Yeah, something like that. I, I forget. Um, you know, because it was one album, it's also a film, and it, and it happens at different times, though. And there's later stuff that goes on. It wasn't a problem. I mean, I remember, I'll never forget when I... I finished the manuscript and I sent it to David Barker. And, you know, you're always, as an author, because it wasn't my first book, as an author, you're always really nervous. Oh, my God, is he going to love it? Is he going to hate it? You know, am I going to have to move to another country? Am I going to have to go in the witness protection program? You know, you're just, you're really, you're scared. You know, and David is a scholar and he's a PhD and he's doing these really serious some of these books he does are like really serious. I'm just like a guy who writes about music. I'm a, I'm a person who knows about music first. And then I, I'm a writer second. I'm just being honest. You know what I'm saying? So I was so like, I, I, I remember I also called him up and I said, I think I'm going to be late on the manuscript by about a week or two. Is that okay? And he like laughed and he said, sure, don't worry about it. It's no problem. And then, you know, whatever it was, 10 days later, I sent him the manuscript and it was, it was about, it was maybe, I don't know, it was over the, the, the space limit, but not a lot. And he read it pretty quickly and he was like, it's great. Don't worry about it. He goes, you did a great job. He goes, he, he goes, I know it must've been hard for you to sort of put all this stuff together. He, he appreciated what I did and he just edited it down for space a little bit. So, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the type of writer who I am good about deadlines and staying within the word count and all that. But, um, it was a different project than the one I had done before because I did so many interviews and I was dealing with, um, I was dealing with things that were, were still unfolding as I was writing the book, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew it would be part of a series too. So there's always going to be this sort of comparison. And some of the other writers were some pretty, you know, heavyweight people, you know, and some of them weren't music journalists. They were novelists or, you know, or they were musicians, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Uh, there was another big musician who wrote one of the books in the series. I'm trying to remember who the person who wrote the Dusty Springfield book. So it's, it was a little daunting in that regard, you know, but people seem to like the book. It's still in print. It's been translated into other languages. It's been anthologized. Um, you know, it could always, you always look back and think, oh, I could have d- done more of this or done more of that. I know some people felt that they wanted a little bit more critique they wanted a little bit more of that, you know, sort of thing. And I just, I don't know. I'm more interested in the, who, the people who were there, what did they see, you know, or sort of put out the information and let people make up their own minds. Like put it out there, let it be part of the canon and, and let it unfold that way. I don't, I don't like to be too heavy handed. Right. Uh, I'm not, I don't really consider myself, you know, you know, someone who writes reviews that are like, well, this is the review and you better read it. And it's, you know, some people write like that. I'm not going to name names. And it's like, I mean, and that's fine. You know, I mean, that's fine. That's okay. It's, it's really not what I do, you know? So you didn't find yourself holding your tongue over certain things? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think John was struggling with heroin while they were making the album. Uh, You know, there is the moment in the film that's very uncomfortable between Paul and George where Paul's kind of a bit bossy, so to speak. But I mean, it's just like, 
Everybody knows that. Like, I'm sure I probably pointed it out in some way. I wasn't looking to uncover like the deep, dark secrets and, you know, that like that. I'm not interested in gossip. You know, I'm, I, I don't that's not the kind of writer that I am. I'm interested in the music. I mean, I try to write something that I think is that people are going to want to read. I mean, I try to write more from the point of view of, you know, somebody who's written about music for a long time. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people. I've interviewed 50 people, more than 50 people who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I've I've met a lot of these people and I've. I've spent so much time listening to music and talking to people about music and going to record stores and going to concerts. And it's more about the music to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's not so much about the, the tell-alls and the, you know, who's having sex with who and what kind of drugs are they doing? Yeah. And it's like, I don't hold back. I'm not going to, I'm not going to whitewash anything or, or sugarcoat it, but I'm not, I, you know, I, like, I, I feel like a lot of like music journalism is not what it used to be. And I think a lot of the reason why is not because of the music journalists, but because of the music. Most of the music right now that's on the charts, I'm not going to say overall, most of the music right now that's on the charts is, it's just, it's show business. It's it's just like entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there, there used to be, it used to have more meaning. You know, like now it's more about like, you know, who's getting married to who and, you know, what scandal are they involved in and. What goofy thing did they say on Twitter yesterday and how many Twitter followers and, and all that is great. It's all fine. I'm, I don't have a problem with it, but it used to be more about the music. And again, I'm talking more about what's on the charts because I think there is a lot of really good music, new music being made. There's always something new. That's great. That is there I, that someone like. that you're listening to now that you really enjoy? I mean, there's a lot of people that have been around for a few years. There's a guy that's, I think he's just coming out with his third album. And his name is Michael Kiwanuka. And um, he's, a, he's a young, black, British guy. And he is just like, he just blows me away. I mean, he has just got a sound that's so unique. And he's, he's gotten a certain amount of, you know, acclaim and popular acclaim. And people definitely are sort of plugged into who this guy is. And he is just, you know, you, I mean, I thought Adele, she's, she was so big because there was so much on the charts that was kind of like fluff and this immense talent comes out. So naturally everybody's like, Oh my God, you know, everybody's blown away because, because here's this truly amazing talent. Powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, there was a period, I think in the beginning of the century for like the first 10 years where there was a lot of really good pop music coming out of England. Music that was on the charts, popular music. And then I felt like this past decade has been has been a bit dry. And again, I'm 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 very specific here in talking about what's on the charts. Right. You know, Bono made a statement, and I, I almost hesitate to repeat it. This was a one or two cover stories back, and he said, We're in a period in pop music right now that's very sort of girly. <laughs> okay, Bono. <laughs> And I, what he meant was it's music being made by very young girls for very young girls. And that was a lot of what was on the charts other than rap music. That's what he was trying to say. And I, I think that there's some truth to that. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing, but I want to hear music. I want to hear instruments. Too much of the music today is it's all electronic. It's all auto-tune. And people don't seem to sustain 
musical careers beyond their sort of shelf life as a celebrity. It's too much about the celebrity, you know? I mean, look, it's always been about rock and roll, pop music. It's always been about image and and that sort of thing. That's part and parcel of it. It's even the 60s, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Part of the appeal is, is the image too. But nowadays it just seems, I don't know, it just, people come and go so fast. Like you see the who are, I mean, they're still touring. I mean, the Rolling Stones are still touring and, and a hundred thousand people are showing up. You people know? are still clearly hungry for that kind of music. I yeah. mean, this is clearly a story that is very alive and well for, you know, a lot of reasons. And this is clearly one of them, but why do you think with this new documentary coming out and why do you think people still care about the Beatles and this story? What resonates with people? You know, it's interesting. I think there was a time when people figured, okay, well, the Beatles are the biggest group in the world. Okay, they, mm-hmm. they set the bar. Okay, great. And then after they broke up, people probably figured, okay, well, they were great. You know, like, there's gonna, something else is going to come along. Okay. And yeah, things come along. You know, Bruce Springsteen, you know, U2, Michael Jackson, whatever. Things come along. But then we kind of reached a point where, you know what? Nothing is ever going to come along that's going to be that good and and still sustain and where new audiences are interested in it. Mm. Part of it was the time, you know? I mean, I think that back then, you know, right now culture is very homogenized. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean that because we live in the global village that we've lived in since the 60s, where everything's connected, everything's corporate, And so regional culture is disappearing because of that. And so a lot of the music that came out in the 60s and the 70s sprung from these regional cultures, the Greenwich Village folk scene, you know, the San Francisco psychedelic scene, Motown in Detroit, the Memphis Stax sound, um, Nashville before it became completely watered down. Um, you know, Boston had a great music scene. Um, it's even, you know, Seattle was probably Seattle and Compton were probably the last two places where a regional music came from. That was directly the result of the, of the culture. There isn't, there is none of that anymore, really. So some of it is just that I think, I think we came out of, um, this incredible, um, time of education you know, both in England and America, you know, there was this very educated baby boomer group of people who, who were really smart and educated and and were open to things and were exposed to things. And they took stuff and then you mix in these new technologies Mm. and they went into different places, you know? So I think that that's another, that's another thing. You know, you have to remember that you know, when the Beatles first came up, 62, 63, I mean, rock and roll was still a very new thing as far as it, as far as popularity. It had only really been popular since like 1956 mm-hmm. with like Elvis Presley and, yeah. and Bill Haley. So they had all, all they had also listened to folk music and jazz and country and skiffle and and blues and show music. That was a very big influence, particularly on Paul all the soundtracks to all the great 
movies that were movies of all the great Broadway plays and the Broadway show soundtracks and, um, you know, all of that sort of thing. So there were all these influences that they had so they could create something new. It's, it's difficult at this point to, for anybody in popular music and rock and roll to come up with something that is just so totally, you know, even Adele, as great as she was, she very much was a throwback to like Dusty Springfield or even like Alison Moyet or somebody like mm -hmm. that, you know, like it wasn't new. It wasn't different where the Beatles were like, once they had really developed their own sound after they got past just doing covers and stuff, you had this thing that was, it was totally new. There was never groups with their own instruments, mm -hmm. writing their own songs. You know, that sounds crazy now. You think, oh my God, like everybody does that, you know? But at that time, that wasn't the way it was. You had, you know, the Brill Building, you know, where you had singers and then you had songwriters and you had producers and the people that own the companies and mm -hmm. the song pluggers and arrangers. And it was like a factory. It was like an assembly line. And the Beatles just changed it completely. They could have produced themselves really if they wanted to. They could have done that too. And most of the 60s groups, as they went along, a lot of them at times would do that. Or they would work with a producer where really he was just kind of there and they really were mm -hmm. producing themselves. So um, when you have groups too, and this is why I think today's music suffers when it's, it's a lot of just singers, one person. When you have a group, you have everybody's bringing something to the table. And okay, so if it, they're all from Liverpool, they're all from Liverpool. But if you get a group like, the Eagles, I'll use them as an example. Well, they're all from different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, Don Henley is from Texas and Glenn Fry, I believe, was from Detroit. And Randy Meissner was from, I think, Missouri. And then they all end up in California. And then they're in that incubator of that music scene. Mm -hmm. And so you have this thing that's completely unique because you have all these different, it's like a gumbo. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like it's like a gumbo. It's not a piece of cheese. You know, it's like it's like all this stuff going on. So you get the birds. You know, you've got Roger McGuinn and David Crosby and Gene Clark and Chris Hellman. Nowadays, you don't have two guys in a group, really. You know, Kings of Leon are one of the few groups around that I get that buzz from. Now, it's their siblings and cousins. So you also get that. That's another thing that's missing, I think, a lot from music. You know, back then you had a lot of groups, the Beach Boys, siblings and cousins, the Kinks, brothers, you know. Jackson 5. <laughs> Jackson Jackson 5, the you know, the Everly Brothers. And, and then later you get, you know, UB40 and Oasis, the Black Crows. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's something about siblings that you can't learn that. You can't learn that. You know, when Don and Phil Everly sing together... There's nothing like that. There's nothing. The Beach Boys, why are those harmonies? Why are they like that? Well, because you've got three brothers and a cousin. So it's, it's magic. It's mm. just magic, you know? So that's what. That's why I wish there were more. I would like to see more groups. I mean, part of it is the record companies, they love solo artists. Because they don't have to, they don't have to get into the arguments. 
well, you know, your, your song is the A side and I want the B side, even though singles don't really exist anymore. All the, all the, you know, the arguing and I want to form my own band that I'm the leader and no, you're the leader and you're not. And they're in the studio and they're fighting and they're having fights on stage. They're punching each other on stage and mm-hmm. record companies don't want to deal with that. They want somebody that's malleable. Okay. So we get somebody that just wants to be famous. Okay. I'm overstating this a little bit, but but it is a lot of what goes on in the record business. I mean, I believe it. And so they love it. And it's a product. And they need to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. And there's nothing wrong with selling products. But for somebody like me, you know, I want to be moved by the music. I want the music to resonate with me and and people. You know, I saw David Bowie's last tour. And it's like, there's no one around like that. You know, I saw Prince many times. Okay. I saw Prince in Paris. I saw the opening night of the Love Sexy Tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you're at this thing that is like people are just like in awe, not because of fame or just because of, oh, yeah, it's, they look great and they dress great and they dance mm-hmm. cool, but because it's, it's just you're, these, are, these people are true one of a kinds. You're witnessing genius. Really. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's just. And that, and that's what you you know that's what you can see, but now it's like 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 who do you like like is there somebody new that you think is like changing the world or just just blowing you away and that you think you'll be listening to in the future? Um, that's a big question. I mean, the people that I'm listening to. Uh, I mean, I love Mitski, for instance. I think she's a genius. David yeah, Burns said yeah. so. My yeah, she's. I like her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that she's a musical genius. Um, I think her new album is poetry. And she also, I just saw her perform live. And although she can't necessarily carry a stage in the same way, I think she needs a sort of smaller venue. I think like her persona on stage is a performance in a very kind of David Bowie-esque kind of way. I find her intriguing. And she can play music too. She can play guitar. and So she's not just a singer. Right. You know, no. Like she's a musician. She's a real rock know. star. And yeah. I also love uh speaking of people who I I mean, these are both solo artists, but Joanna Newsom, I find oh, she's she's, she's been around for a while. Oh, yeah. She's a throwback to me. See, yeah. she is like if she came around in the sixties or the seventies, she'd have the same career. Mm-hmm. Everybody would love her. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's not that she's making music that's like that music, but the process and the form and where it comes from. Is mm-hmm. is the same sort of thing. Yes, I agree with you. I love her. Yeah. But she's not on the charts. She's not like mm-hmm. she like you know who she is. A lot of people know who she is, but she's not dominating the charts when her new album comes out. She's not on every TV show. You know what I'm saying? It's like she's she's one of the people who has a career and is making great music and has her audience, but she's not, you know, she's not Taylor Swift. For example, right. you know. well, I'm not interested in that. I guess right. you could sort of sum up my music taste as sad, weird girls. I love sad, <laughs> like weird girls. Like Lucy I love sad, weird girls. I mean, Joni Mitchell is the first sad, She's weird girl. She's the original sad. I weird mean, girl. and I love Joni. To me, Joni yeah. is like she is. To me, she she towers over everything and everyone. I mean, she's nobody can touch her in terms of her ability to compose and her ability as a musician. And to go off in different directions mm-hmm. in music. She's just extraordinary. And everyone is in awe of her. Everyone. I know she has her, she's had her arguments with people, yeah. you know, like Bob Dylan or whoever. But I interviewed her once and we talked for three hours. 
And it was unbelievable. I mean, this mind, you know, you're dealing with this mind that is just extraordinary. And she's just, and everybody vilified her because she went off and did jazz and she made a record with Charles Mingus. And and I thought it was great. And Prince had the best line about her is where everybody really got on her case was when she did um, The Hissing of Summer Lawns and Rolling Stones tore it to pieces. Okay, and years later, when Prince was at his peak and did one of his cover stories, what did you listen to? What was the last album you bought? He goes, oh, well, the last album that I bought and really listened to was The Hissing of Summer Lawns by Joni Mitchell. (laughs) (laughs) And he let them have it. I mean, she's she's brilliant. She's brilliant. You know, Mm. I mean, it's just it's unique, though. You know, she came from this place of total isolation. I mean, she lived in this place where she was isolated. And so she, she's so self-created from within, mm. you know? I mean, where I think like the Beatles, on the other hand, were very much the, the product of, the, of what was around them. They were serious about listening to other people. They were in love with American rock and roll and American rhythm and blues music mm. and would listen to records and loved to listen to records, you know? John Lennon always used to say, I don't want to go to a concert. I want to stay home and listen to records. I'd rather listen to recordings. So two totally different, you know, artists, really, coming from two totally different places, but equally um, just revelatory. I think young people today, they have the exposure to so much music partially because of Spotify. And I think that a lot of young people are really open and they don't care if it's new, old, men, women, black, white, gay, straight. They don't care. Well, they're hearing they're just hearing the music. And they're hearing so much, you know, you know, that's the thing I do like about Spotify. It makes a lot of music, all kinds of music, readily available to people at a finger's Mm -hmm. touch, you know. And so they go, oh, yeah, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Hendrix. It was the the palette was just infinite in in terms of of what he could have done. You know, I think Brian Jones is somebody from the Rolling Stones who could have he could have won places because he was, he was into world music before anybody. He was recording mm-hmm. uh, the master musicians of Jajuka, you know, in Morocco. So he was doing world music before anybody even knew what world music was. I would have loved to have seen what he would have done. What about John? <laughs> well, I, you know, John, I think he was another one. I think he, he, he kind of went to a certain place and I think there might have been other people maybe he could have collaborated with. This is going to sound crazy, but I liked seeing him collaborate with Yoko because mm. I think Yoko pulled him in a more experimental direction. That doesn't sound crazy at all. I love Yoko. I think that, I you know, there's stuff that, you know, she was doing right before John died that, you know, if you listen to like the B-52s or certain people, they're doing they're doing mm. Yoko or they're maybe not necessarily doing Yoko. But they're doing, they're going into experimental places mm-hmm. that, you know, she was willing to go to that seemed, some people, oh, this is just too far out. Or they just didn't like her, you know, because she took John away from them or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But she was, you know, she, you know Yoko was, a, was Yoko Ono before she met John Lennon. You know, she was an important artist unto her own right. Whether she married John Lennon or not, she was Yoko Ono. So, and you know, and that goes the same for, for Linda McCartney. I mean, Linda was, Linda Eastman was her own person before she met Mm -hmm. Paul. She was a famous 
music photographer. Well, she was a photographer. She was a Mm. famous rock photographer. She was the house photographer at the Fillmore East in New York. She took some of the most famous pictures, speaking of Jimi Hendrix, of Jimi Hendrix. The picture of him in Central Park at the, what is it, the Oscar Wilde, uh, what am I thinking of, the... There's the there's a children's book or something I forget what the Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, yes. And that picture that she took of him that was supposed to be the cover, I believe, of Electric Ladyland. I mean, she was Linda Eastman before she ever met Paul McCartney. So these were accomplished women before they became Beatle wives, you know. And at that time, naturally, of course, women weren't appreciated as much within the larger culture, unfortunately. You know, they're st- as progressive as the time was, that part of the culture still really was sort of still kind of stuck in the past. You've mentioned quite a few artists that you admire. Um, you know, you it you wrote this book 15 years ago. There's been some time to reflect upon it. And we actually have a new book out uh, called 33 and a Third's B-Sides, where you as a former writer, the 33 and a Third writer, reflect on who you would like to write about if you got a second chance to do it. Um, who did you end up writing about? Well, this, you know, it was great when they asked me to do it, you know, because I thought, oh, this is fun. You know, <laughs> right away I see that this is fun. You know, that's how I look at it. This is fun. It's not work. It's fun. So, um, you know, I kind of thought about it a little bit. And I guess what happens is the first thing I do is I start thinking about, okay, what are some of the albums? But then I really think about, well, who do I want to write about? Mm-hmm. You know, who do, who, do I, who do I feel like, you know, makes sense for me to write about given who I've already written about? I like to keep, there are certain people that I think when it comes to the Beatles and the Stones, um, the Who, Dylan, mm-hmm. um, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, I like writing about those people and I like writing about those people because I think you can do longer form things. There's a lot mm-hmm. of research out about them, but also then I can go live in that place. <laughs> I can get on the, get in the time machine and I can go live there. But I took a different approach with this than the let it be book. I made this more personal. This really more, this really was more of a personal essay what mm-hmm. I wrote. And so I picked a live album, which is not the kind of thing that normally people do with these kind of books. Mm-hmm. Although one of the best books in the series is the book um, about James Brown at the Apollo, the live right. show. One of the best books in the series. One of the greatest albums ever made. Probably one of the greatest concerts ever. So I picked the band Rock of Ages. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the band. Um, you know, I write about them um quite a bit in my Dylan book um, because there was a long period where Dylan played with them. They were his backing group, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So Rock of Age was like one of the first albums that I owned. You know, as soon as I was old enough to get the stereo and start listening to FM radio, like that was one of the first things that like jumped out at me. This would be 1972, say. Now I'm dating myself. <laughs> That's okay. okay. I was a year old. At that time. Okay. Um, So that album is just one of the greatest live albums. And so I I kind of wrote about the album, but then I wrote about how I saw the band on the last Waltz tour and it was basically the same set and it was at the same venue. It was no longer called the Academy of Music. It was then called the Palladium. Um, No longer exists. And over the years, I got to meet the guys in the band and I got to interview them and I got to know them pretty well. 
So I, that's how the whole story evolves. And it was kind of like, you know, here I was this kid and I was into this album. And then later I become this guy who writes about music and mm. I go to the, see them and then I get to meet them and hang out with them. And so it was, that's really what the essay is. I had a lot of fun writing it. I really enjoyed doing it. It came very easily. Um, I just, I love the band. I mean, they were one of the great groups. Again, groups. Well, maybe you'll get to actually write the next 33 and a third about them. You know, I, you know, I would write, uh, I mean, most people would say, well, you know, you shouldn't do the, you shouldn't do Rock of Ages because how do you do that? Because it's a concert, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, Big Pink would be the album. I don't know if, I think Big Pink is already in the series. And I think as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, the person that wrote that, and you know, you'll have to correct me on this. The person that wrote it, wrote it as a novel. And I believe that it was optioned by Spike Lee's film production company, if I remember the story correctly. I mean, I don't personally know if that's true, but that sounds wild. I'm going to have yeah. to check in with somebody yeah. about I that. I mean, they made, there's another album they made. It's called, it's just called The Band. People yeah. call it The Brown Album. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it's a classic album, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm sure there's other albums that it, the editors would rather see, or there's others that I would, other albums I would probably want to write about, you know. Well, that's all we have time for today, but I have really enjoyed talking to you about the Beatles and the band and all these other, you know, musicians in between. And I think that it would be really great if you take this long form essay about the band and maybe, or some other band and end up writing another 33. Another. You know, I would love to it again because it, it's been a great experience and this has mm -hmm. been a great experience. Thank you very much. You asked great questions. Thanks, Steve.